This is the Complete Center's Guide. I am your host, Tyler Fowler. And with me, as always, Noah Chalaya. What is going on, brother man? Hey, I'm doing great, Tyler. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, dude. We got an amazing conversation lined up for everyone that's watching, that's listening. We're going to participate in an open discussion about open theism. I have Will Duffy on with us. We have Michael Chandler Keaton, the co-host of CSG. The prodigal son finally returns to CSG. Michael, what is going on, brother? How have you been and what have you been up to since the last time we heard from you, bro? I've been well, man. I've been well, brother. Just uh, being a father, being a dad, uh, helping out around church and basically just uh, working, working, working. Mucho overtime. Yes, sir. I hear you. I'm on the same boat. Like we had this much time to prepare for 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 this conversation because of work. Like we're I'm in the train car business for those who don't know, and it's just it's getting more and more. We're getting more cars in, and it, I don't know what to say. Like it's just it's insane. But but tonight I am so excited to actually have a discussion. This is the first time we've actually talked open theism on uh, CSG. And so Will will give a, a, a positive case for that here in just a second. But Mike, I want to start with you. We hold to the traditional view that God knows future, God knows past, present, future, God knows everything, right? And so if you would, give, take five to seven minutes, explain to our listeners what the traditional view is of, uh, of this discussion. Um, where do you disagree with Will? And what, what does the Bible teach about this? Well, uh, actually, I had uh, kind of outlined uh, what I was going to say here, so I'll stick pretty close to that, and hopefully uh, that'll answer some questions. Uh, I believe uh, when we discussed this episode, we mentioned I'd take the Reformed view, which I believe is pretty pretty close to the traditional view in the sense that we believe, of course, uh, that God has exhausted uh, foreknowledge in the future. But uh, the Reformed view, uh, and again, this is the entirety of traditional Protestants, evangelical Christianity, uh, is that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of future events. Uh, in the Reformed tradition, uh, we go a step further, of course, and say that God not only knows the future, but declares and decrees exactly what the future will bring. Uh, the standard Reformed explanation of this uh, can be seen in various uh, Reformed confessions, an example of which uh, we can find in the fifth chapter uh, of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, which reads, God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, and justice, goodness, and mercy. Although, in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet, by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily freely contingent. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against men uh, at his pleasure. So the reform view of God's omniscience is built uh, not upon any of the various passages that deal with God plainly stating things that will come to pass in the future, but on his very nature and character. We truly believe that God is omnipotent and sovereign. We talk in actual omnipotent. God is all powerful. Nothing is impossible for him. He created his universe for his purpose to his glory. Everything in his universe and every law of his universe is subject to him. Uh, we don't believe that he is subject 
so that we can create. And we do believe that God created time and exists outside of time. We admit that he operates obviously in time, uh, but that he's not constrained by it, because we feel that if indeed time exists apart from God and God is bound by it, then we need to search for whatever created time and worship it, for it would be truly God. No, God is not subject to or bound to anything but his own nature. And I think it would be fitting to remember uh, what God reveals in his word. Uh, we know that he told Moses that it was he uh, who decided, uh, controlled, I guess, whether a man was born blind or seen, deaf or him, mute or speaking. Uh, he told Abraham centuries in advance that his descendants would be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years and that they would come out with many possessions. And then he repeated this to the Hebrews when that day came. Uh, and, and, and we're told when that day came that the Lord made the Egyptians to have such a favorable disposition toward the Hebrew slaves that they freed them, but not only freed them, they gave them gold and silver to boot. And so this doesn't sound like a God that's either in the dark about in submission to the free will decisions of the creatures. But I would still say that the most convincing scriptural truth must be in Genesis 50. I don't think anyone can really read Joseph's story and believe that it was all something God never saw coming uh, and that it was wholly dependent on free will of men. Uh, no, this is a story of a sovereign God who not only knows the future, but decrees it. Uh, and they even the free will of men. Uh, and obviously, uh, a certain part, certain decisions that were made. Joseph told his brothers plainly, he said, you have not brought me here, but God. And he tells us further that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But not just that God was using it or it happened or God took advantage of circumstances. But we know that God intended it uh, for a purpose, to save many people alive, we're told. And that's just in the short term. And I wish we had more time because there's much more to be said about what happened in the long term. I mean, these are the people that would become Israel, uh, that would, uh, we know that they would be a set-apart people, that the Savior would come from them. So uh, just in Joseph's story, we see so much. And, uh, with, uh, with respect to every other view out there, I don't think that we're seriously going to understand that every event in Joseph's story was just the unforeseen, uh, at least by God, result of a myriad of free will decisions. And this is not just a, a reform view, but uh, in any traditional uh, Protestant evangelical view, you would have to say that there was more there than just random free will decisions. We could ask, and Joseph's brothers are simply children. They certainly contemplated it rather than selling him into slavery. Or could Potiphar's wife have not tried to produce it? Uh, uh, and we have to ask ourselves, did these things happen? Would God have thought of plan B? Uh, and at what point did God uh, come to decide that he was going to do this with Joseph? Even though we know this is the descendant of Abraham, that this is promised to. Because if, if, if he doesn't have uh, the knowledge of even three good decisions and men before him, I, I don't see how he could have known they would be alive. And if he did not know that Joseph would be alive, I submit to you that he's not gone at all. And I again, with respect, to sincerely ask. We're told so many times in Scripture to, that this God is worthy of glory and praise. And, and, and if he's just hoping for the best scenario or, or getting lucky, I don't see how he's gone at all. And I certainly don't see that he, he would be praiseworthy uh, or that we would uh, have any reason to glorify and I kind of just went over uh, what I had prepared there. Sure. Yeah, Mike. Let me ask you this real quick: Are you on speakerphone, or are you? Um... Is this better? That is much better. That is much better. Well, well I hate that I gave my whole speech. Uh, hopefully, well, you can make out most of what I'm saying. 
I didn't want to cut you off um, be, because you were. I was understanding a little bit of it. Um, but basically, the, the points that I got was Genesis 50 explains that whenever we see evil, or at least in this case, whenever man intended evil, God was working good through that, right? And for, right, for would, me, go ahead. I, mean, I would just definitely say that it, it goes further than just because we can point to myriad examples in Scripture of where God brings something uh, from something else something that maybe seems bad or, or something like that. But what's interesting here, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but I've heard people that, that are that are very versed in Hebrew say that there's a sort of a parallel between the what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's not just it's sort of on the surface level, we don't really get the full effect in English, mm-hmm. that there's actual a positive intent on God's part for it. But even in the English, that's made manifest uh, manifestly clear in that he gives us the purpose that he intended it for. And again, in the short term, that's to save many people alive. But like I said, I wish we just had more time to go into all that that meant later. Uh, just that right. one man's life and, and what happened to him. What that basically set the stage for everything else that happens in the Old and New Testament. Right, right. And then you said, um, I think, and correct me if this is wrong, but you said, why should we glorify uh, a God that is, you know, that doesn't know the future, that isn't working a specific plan that He has? you know, he's decreed from the very beginning, right? And so your question was, why should we glorify this God? Why is he worthy of worship, right? I want to get, I want to go ahead and transition uh, to Will. And Will, um, sorry, again, my apologies about uh, Mike's audio there, but I think we're on track now. But Will, if you would like to go ahead and respond to what Mike has said, um, take your time in. And again, like I said in, your, in the text, I'll give you a little bit more time uh, than five to seven minutes to really explain what is open theism from somebody who's never heard of this before. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, open theism is essentially the theology that the uh, future is open and not settled. And foundationally, the reason I believe in open theism is because of free will. And what's interesting is when we say free will, most people assume that we're talking about men, but my position is actually based on God's free will. So I believe that the future is open because God himself has free will. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I'm an open theist because I believe that this is what the Bible teaches from cover to cover. So I believe that this is the most consistent biblical theology on God and his knowledge. And uh, open theists don't have to take random, obscure verses uh, from places in the Old Testament or wherever. Um, I created a list of open theism verses when I was preparing for my debate with Matt Slick of CARM.org. That list has grown to almost 600 verses. And we actually see open theism through all of the main stories in the Bible that everyone's familiar with. So we could look at the creation to see open theism, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Abraham and Isaac, Moses and the Exodus, um, Israel's relationship with God throughout the Old Testament, uh, the potter and the clay, uh, Jonah and, and Nineveh. In the New Testament, we can look at the Incarnation, we can look at the Ascension, the life of Christ. All of these 
uh, show open theism. And so when we look at the Bible as a whole, I'm going to make a couple of observations here that I think are pretty significant. Um, the first is, uh, it appears that the Bible is completely absent of verses stating first that God is outside of time. So other terminology could be used as timeless or in an eternal now, not was nor will be, but only is, has no past, has no future. I believe the Bible is completely absent of verses stating that. Next, uh, we don't have any verses in the Bible that states that God knows everything that will ever happen, which I believe is your position. Uh, we don't have any verses that show that God can intervene in the past. Of all of the miracles in the Bible, God never once changes the past. Um, this was mentioned by Mike in, in, in his opening statement. We don't have a single verse in the Bible that says God has decreed everything that will ever happen. Um, we don't have a verse that says God created time. We have no verse that shows that God exists in the past or in the future. And then we have no verse that states that God knew us before the foundations of the earth. And so I believe that those seven categories we would expect to find in the Bible if this idea that God knows the future exhaustively was true, but we don't. On the flip side, we find dozens of verses in each of these categories that God experiences duration in his life and in his existence, meaning he has a past and is temporal. We have dozens of verses stating where, that God says something will happen, but it does not happen. Dozens of verses where God says he thought something would happen, but it did not happen. Dozens of verses where God says things like uh, certain things never entered his mind, uh, phrases like that. We have many examples where God indicates that the future is uncertain by saying perhaps, by chance, lest, etc. And then we've got uh, many verses, I think over two dozen, where God repents and changes his mind. And then we have all of the examples throughout the Bible where God shows regret over his own actions. And so when we compare the amount of biblical information missing from the settled view that God knows the future exhaustively and it will only pan out in one way, it is settled, that cannot change. And we contrast that to the hundreds of verses that show the future is open. Hence, I'm an open theist. Um, I do have one prediction that I'd like to make here at the outset, and we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll be wrong, but I do predict that at some point in our conversation, the argument will go from what does the Bible teach to what do men believe and what do men teach? And I just like to say right at the outset that I am an open theist because I believe this is what the Bible teaches and I do not put any weight 
or authority in what men teach or believe. I'm so glad you said that, uh, Will, because I agree 100%. The Bible is our authority, right? We don't believe something just because somebody else said it, right? We don't, we don't do that. I, I want to go ahead and jump right into uh, Q&A with a question of my own. Two, really, I want to make a, I want to ask a, a clarifying question, and then I want to ask um, the the question you said you mentioned that you did not know how this would how this conversation is going to turn out. My first question is: Does God know how this conversation is going to turn out? Specifically regarding what? Just what will happen next? What will what will have been said? What all of these different things? Does God know that right now? Well, that's an interesting question, Tyler. And uh, I'm going to give you an answer that I think you'll be satisfied with. Satisfied with, But right now, think of what God knows. He knows what I've typed up in my notes. He knows the arguments that you have prepared that you're going to say. So there's a lot of things that he knows now that will happen in our discussion. So if you were to have asked me a different question, which was two weeks ago, mm-hmm. Did God know exactly what would happen in this conversation? I would say no. Okay, so God learns. Are you comfortable saying that? Well, the Bible says that God learns, so I'm absolutely comfortable with that. Okay, so here's my question then. I want to go to the Bible. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do, or he has spoken, and will he not make it good? My question is, Will, how is God any different from you and I, according to the open theist view of God? Because he sounds like he's learning. He's doing all these different things. If I knew your notes, like I would know what is said. I could, you know, predict fairly accurately how this conversation will go. My, like I said, my question is, how is God different than man in the sense that man repents, man learns? How is God different from your view? Sure. Uh there, there could not be more difference between us and God. Um, God has dynamic omniscience. And the, the fact that his omniscience is dynamic, that means it is expanding as the world expands. And so, you know, there, there's a difference between, uh, you know, there's a difference between us learning something, meaning someone has to teach us something versus God taking in information. So there's a huge difference. Um, yeah, go ahead. Right, right, right. But my my point more so is according from Numbers twenty three, God is not a man that he should lie. If God says something is going to happen and that does not happen, God lied, right? Or does or does God just not know and he was just wrong? No. So I definitely think if we were to you know find an example of, of what you're referring to, I think if we examined it, it would actually be your view that makes God a liar and not mine. So my view is, is that if God says something and he, in, and he actually intends to do it, that if circumstances change, he's righteous. And so he will change because he's righteous. In your view, God says he's going to do something fully knowing he won't. And I would consider that lying. If he, I, I forget exactly how you just said it, but you said the, okay, Michael, do you have uh, any questions for, for Will at this point? Uh, well, as far as questions, I mean, I've got a, a ton of things that I wish I could say. If I had to ask one right now, I guess my main question would be, uh, I can just think of what, what would it, what does it mean to you, Will, 
when God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. What what was meant there? If indeed he couldn't have even known that Jeremiah's parents would get together and have Jeremiah. Yeah, fantastic question. I think that's Jeremiah 1.5, if memory serves me uh, correct. Um, and so what I'd like to point out for you guys both is that, number one, as I stated in my opening statement, that verse does not say that Jeremiah was known before the foundations of the earth, but that is your position. What it does say is, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, which is absolutely true. So let's get into biology a little bit, because I think that this is important, and I also think that it's fun. Uh, life does not start in the womb. <laughs> life starts in the fallopian tubes, and some two to three weeks later, uh, that uh, unique individual tiny human being ends up implanted in the womb. So what that verse is saying is that God intimately knows us from the moment of fertilization. And it's fascinating because think of how incredible God is from the moment of fertilization. Think of, every, think, think of everything that he knows about that individual. He knows their hair color, their eye color, their personality traits, their defects, etc., because he's the one that designed reproduction and the genome. But isn't that part of God forming Jeremiah and his mother's womb? The fertilization, everything from the from the moment the sperm hits the egg, that is God forming Jeremiah. Form. Correct. Yeah. Well, the verse says, "Before I formed you." In Before the womb, I formed you in the womb, right? And you're saying I knew that. You. And you're saying that, right, I chose you, I knew you. But the point that I think Mike is getting at is the word is before. You just said that this, God knows all this whenever the sperm hits hit, hits the egg or whenever the fallopian tubes. Like, my point is that, is, that is what I would say God is forming Jeremiah includes those things. This is, the text is saying before all that happened. I knew you, or I chose you, or I set you apart. I also would like to say, uh, I hope that we would keep in mind here also that this wasn't just written so that we could understand it today in our technological age. It was written so those people then as well could know it, and they certainly would have not had all this information about right. uh, genomes and then the fallopian tubes, and so it, uh, they would have never understood that part of it. They would have understood it in the most simplistic way, uh, I think, the way that we would naturally uh, understand it, just passing over at one time. Sure. The, the Bible, Mike, talks about the gravitational attraction of stars. So it absolutely was not written just so that they would understand it back then. It was written yeah. so that we would discover the amazing things that God has done. And again, Tyler, it says that God knew him before he was formed in the womb. And I'm here saying that we exist for two to three weeks before the womb. And so number one, this verse does not state your position that God knows the entire future and it's present no. knowledge. No, I never made the claim that it states that God knows the entire future, but I am making the claim that no. this text says that God knew Jeremiah before Jeremiah existed. That's okay. It absolutely does not say before he existed. Okay. All right. That, it's just, it's and and this, it sounds like it's going to be, this is my interpretation of the Bible. This is your interpretation of the Bible. And we just split ways of that. I don't want to do that. Will I want to understand why you're saying, because the text is clear before I formed you in your mother's womb. Is that a literal, like before they actually, before, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't know exactly how it all works. But what I'm trying to explain, and it doesn't seem like you're getting it, is that 
that process from from sex of the parents to to all of all of the development everything that goes on with that embryo with that god this text is saying that before all that god chose jeremiah god set jeremiah apart and that would require god to know jeremiah before all of that happens sure so what you're what you're saying tyler is that you're, you're interpreting you know the the actual word womb there as everything else and i'm actually taking it literally which is that god actually i do believe god knew jeremiah before he was formed in the womb and secondly i would like to point out that it doesn't make a lot of sense for god to say that i knew you before you were formed in the womb when he could have easily said i knew you before the foundation of the world which is what your position is so as I stated in my opening statement, if we had scripture that said God knew us before the foundation of the world, then my theology, open theism, would be false. Say what she was going to say, Mike. Well, we know. Well, we know that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. But no, I would. I would certainly object to the idea that because uh, this specific phraseology is not used, uh, you can't use anything to support your view that would indicate some, that God has something more than this kind of working knowledge. And I would also point out that certainly I'm go I plan if I get very many opportunities to speak to quote from many great Christians throughout history, because the scriptures tell us that iron sharpens iron. We should be taking advantage. We stand on the, the shoulders of giants. And I would point out that Will has also already come out with uh, his terminology that's unique to open theism. And he's uh, told us about uh, dynamic omnipotence and how God's uh, knowledge expands. And so we're all going to use things that came before a little bit. Uh, uh, but I, And again, I would challenge even things that were said earlier that uh, our position is nowhere taught in Scripture. I've always been against... To me, I can present you 8,000 verses. It's just as bad as presenting one verse uh, if I'm isolating solitary verses. But what we, t what we try to do uh, in traditional uh, Protestant Christianity with a traditional understanding of traditional theism is we try to take the entire scriptures, read them in an exegetical fashion, uh, and then we can highlight a verse if we see perspicuity of scripture, analogy of faith, that it's presenting a truth that is, is, is just kind of pounded into our head over and over. And I would say if we read, for instance, in the Proverbs, when we understand that uh, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every outcome is from the Lord. That's a very mundane task that we might uh, liken to flipping a coin or rolling a dice today, but it's every outcome from the Lord. When we read that the king's hand is like uh, the, the king's heart is like rivers of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. When we read that Samson's desire for a Philistine woman was of the Lord, uh, and I could go on forever, but I don't want to take up too much time. But yes, there is sure. ample evidence. Uh, we read Isaiah 10 that he decrees what the Assyrians will do. Uh, and then he punishes them for it because their free will is compatible with his decree. Acts 4, 27, 28. Again, there's countless verses, and we put those verses together, and we come up with a consistent exegesis that seems to say, yes, the Lord does indeed decree whatsoever comes to pass in his universe. And it makes sense because he has a purpose. Nowhere in Scripture we given the idea that his purpose was simply to create and kind of see what happens and hope for the best or try to get the outcome that he wanted. And again, I would ask Will, if that's indeed what he's doing – why does he constantly demand worship and, 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 and to be glorified? And why are the angels surrounding him saying, holy, 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 as if he is just the greatest thing that we could possibly fathom if actually he's a lot like us? Uh, cool. I, I'd like to respond to a few things. Um, so, yeah, Mike, yeah, sorry, you, you, you said a lot there. Um, number one, and I'd like to just get a couple things out here before we dive into these. Um, you said that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. That is absolutely not true. 
the uh, the crucifixion was about 2,000 years ago. It was not before the foundation of the world. Number two, all of those verses that you just said, Mike, have nothing to do with what our topic right now. <laughs> all these verses you were saying, you know, the lot cast into the lap, the king's heart as the river, Acts 4, 27, 28, none of those have anything to do with God knowing the future. So I feel like you're maybe getting confused trying to maybe defend like Calvinism or something, but that's not what we're talking about. We're trying to see if the Bible teaches if God knows the future or not, and none of those verses are relevant. Well, it, you just I, I like that you brought up the crucifixion, Will, because I wanted to ask you about the crucifixion. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes. How could he have done that if he didn't even know who you were, what sins you would commit? Do you believe uh, people died so that you would have uh, freedom in this country? Categorical difference, my friend. God is dying. Mm -hmm. oh, let me ask, no, seriously, well, God, Jesus bore your sins on the cross, correct? That's what Isaiah, that's what Peter says. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Um, yeah, <laughs> the, the cross is not a mathematical equation. Uh, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save any number of people. That's why and God I asked the Father, if... Hold on. God the Father applies that sacrifice to anyone's sins when they are saved. So Jesus didn't bear your personal sins. He just died for sin in general. And whoever would accept him is, is given that, right? There's no personal aspect to it is what I'm asking. Your personal sins that you commit on a daily basis, did Christ die for? Did, did Christ bear those? Yeah, as I stated, I don't believe that the cross was a mathematical equation, meaning if I committed different sins, the crucifixion would have been different. Or if I committed more sins, it would have been different. Or less sins, it would have been different. Nothing would have changed that. But Jesus didn't die for you specifically. He died for the world. Yeah, I believe he died for the world, as so the Bible you, says. So do you deny substitutionary atonement? Ah, man, from an open, from to, an open theist perspective. I hate to do this, Tyler, but it's not on topic. And so if we go off on all these rabbit trails, we're gonna it's going to be a mess for the audience. I, I want to focus on, does the Bible teach if God knows the future or not? Just a simple open theist question. Actually, really, I have to object here, and I hate to, to do so, but I do have to object. I don't think that we can constantly... Uh, uh, look, if we're just looking for verses that either say uh, that, uh, that say, "Hey, uh, God knows everything that's ever going to happen in the future," or a verse that says God does not, that's not how exegesis works. And I would submit that every verse I've submitted so far is exegetically consistent with the idea that we're presenting. Uh, just as the, just as uh, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, I know that it happened temporarily two thousand years ago. But if the statement the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world is wrong, it's not me that's wrong. It's John the Beloved who's wrong because that's what he wrote in Revelation. 13.8. The point that I was making was that Christ wasn't a possibility that he might be slain. It was a guarantee because this is what God had decreed before the foundation of the universe. Hey, Mike, are you open to being wrong about your interpretation of Revelation 13.8? Absolutely. Can we discuss it right now? For me, it's fine. I don't know how much time Tyler wants to take on individual verses, but it is relevant to the subject, so... I, I think we can take. I say we take time. I, I'd yeah, like to hear. I think so. Absolutely. Okay. Cool. All right. So I'm going to pull up my Bible here real quick, and we will go to Revelation 13, verse eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All right. If we want to exegete this, which means use scripture to interpret scripture, what we find 
is that the prepositional phrase of the lamb slain is describing ownership of the book of life. And the prepositional phrase from the foundation of the world is referring to the book of life. And I will demonstrate that now. If we go to Revelation 17, also verse 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So we have scriptures telling us specifically that the book of life is from the foundation of the world. And then if we go to Revelation 21, this is the final verse, uh, verse 27, it says, But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, which could also be written the book of life of the Lamb. This is possessive. And so Revelation 13, 8, I'm going to reword it just so that people understand the argument that I'm making, and then you can respond. If it said this, it would be completely grammatically correct and exegetically correct. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the Lamb Slain's book of life from the foundation of the world. Mike, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, uh, I appreciate uh, the time taken, but uh, not convinced. Uh, I have here, of course, the Greek in front of me, which is the Texas Receptus, that tells me that it is also uh, perfectly fine grammatically to translate written in the slain lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world uh, and says here that uh, this is a wrap-up of the lamb. And so the lamb uh, is referred to as slain before the foundation of the world. Uh, and the book also of life has been, uh, and then its contents have been there from the uh, foundation. Uh, so to me, that would even strengthen my point, because not only was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, but the names written in the, the Lamb's book of life were there from the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. Okay, can I respond to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had this discussion with a lot of people, and and again, no one's ever been able to explain to me what it means that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world if he was actually slain 2,000 years ago. It's so easy, though. It's so easy. I mean, I would say to me that no one can explain it because there's presuppositions that get in the way. And I say that respectfully because the, a person uh, that believes the way that uh, a traditional Christian theists believe, that says to us immediately, hey, God had this plan before the foundation of the world that his only begotten son uh, uh, would shed his precious blood for his people. And it just seems extremely obvious to us. So I, would, I don't think that it's that difficult to grasp. Maybe disagree, but the idea that uh, because it happened temporarily 2,000 years ago just makes it very, very hard to understand. Uh, I don't think that that uh, necessarily follows. Can I, well, Mike, Can I yeah, just ask ahead. a practical question, just real, a clarifying question uh, about this text? It, for both of you guys, I know Mike would say that this is, well, I think Mike would say this is future. Will, is this future for you? Is this uh, Revelation 13, has it already happened? Uh, it's definitely future. And I, and I, and I, can we come back to that? Can I just put a bow yeah. on this with what Mike yeah, said? Let, yeah, let's come back to that. So Mike, Mike, I, I'm just trying to, I'm just hoping we can be honest with each other and, you know, logical. You are claiming that what it says is not what happened. You're claiming it says that he was slain before the foundation of the world, which I think absolutely doesn't have to say that. And then you're saying, well, it means that it was planned before the foundation of the world. Well, it could have said it was planned before the foundation of the world. 
I think we should all agree that, that Christ was not slain before the foundation of the world. And by the way, I actually think the cross was planned before the foundation of the world. We're in agreement there, but this verse doesn't have to say that. Well, the verse doesn't have to say that. Uh, and that's, I think that's a really big issue in these kind of discussions is we could always, uh, for instance, proffer something that the, that Scripture could have said instead. But I, I don't like to do that. I like to take Scripture as it is. But to me, and I, I mean this with all due respect, that is possibly one of the weakest objections I've ever heard. That uh, because the words say the lamb was slain before the found the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, to say that every word that's written in Scripture must be taken woodenly, literally. I mean, are we to believe that we must actually uh, partake of Jesus' flesh? Are we to believe that he is a, 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 a he is water? He's the living waters. Of course not. We understand. Uh, uh, the way that uh, there's so many forms of speech, figures of speech in the Greek, but I don't see that we have to take this woodenly literally. This must mean that temporally, before the world was ever, uh, before the foundation of the universe, the Lamb must have been slain. Uh, because if we apply that principle to the rest of Scripture, I might as well toss the book in the trash. I won't be able to understand any of it, because there is so many figures of speech that are employed that Okay, well, if we're, it sounds like we're in agreement. If you think that it does not mean he was slain before the foundation of the world, it merely means that it was a plan. We're in full agreement. And just a final comment on your Book of Life comment. Uh, I actually think that the Book of Life is evidence of open theism because we see that names are erased in the Bible, a.k.a. being blotted out of the Book of Life. The last thing that I would say really quickly that is that uh, – in agreement in the sense that it didn't happen temporarily there, but as uh, as far as how we translate it, uh, of course, I believe that that meant it was going to happen no matter what, no matter what anyone did, and the exact players and actors were going to do what they did. But I would say, though, that that might be somewhat of a unique position because I've heard several open theists uh, recently as I was preparing for this who would not say the same thing, that it was a guarantee from from all time, uh, from the beginning, that, that Christ would want to be crucified, that indeed there might have been other possibilities, and I've heard it said that... Uh, it was a point in time when it was decided because this and that happened. So certainly, uh, I, I don't know what percentage of open theists would agree with the, with you. Then, will that you agree that you know Christ was to be slain, uh, and that was agreed upon and 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 decreed before the foundation of the world. All right, I've got a couple questions, and then I want to ask if anybody from the community has got any questions. Uh, feel free to jump in. We've got about 20 minutes left. So a couple points that I want to make out. Um, first, I want to go back to Jeremiah 1 and just read it. So the Lord's message came to me. I'm starting verse 4. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. I answered, O sovereign Lord, really, I do not know how to speak well enough for that, for I'm too young. The Lord said to me, Do not say I'm too young, but go to whomever I send you and say whatever I tell you. Do not be afraid of those whom I send you, for I will be with you to protect you, says the Lord. Then verse 9 says, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I will most assuredly give you the words you are to speak for me. Will, is verse 9 literal or is that metaphorical? Did, did God actually reach out his literal hand and touch Jeremiah on the mouth? Or is this a figure of speech explaining something? Uh, sorry, I was not expecting that question. Let me pull it up really fast. Uh, Jeremiah one, Jeremiah one nine. One nine, yes, sir. Uh, no idea. You don't know if I think he's speaking. I no, no. I I, I don't know if it's uh, if it was a physical touching or not. But and I'm asking again, you. I, I hate how, to do this, but 
Does this show that God knows the future? No, no, no. I'm at no. My question is: You're taking verse five literally. I'm asking in verse nine that it, are you being consistent? Are you going to take this literally as well, or is Jeremiah trying to explain something using language that we can all understand as a metaphor or figure of speech? Even that's well, the point that I'm trying to five, make. Verse five is uh, is quoting God, and it ends in verse five. And then verse nine is written by Jeremiah. So I, again, I, we're, we're going to see we're going to see figures of speech, and 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 the next verse there's not one, and the next verse there is one. So that's common throughout the Bible. But again, I don't know. I, I, I'm telling you, I think it's possible it was physical touching, and it's possible that it was not. I don't know. Why are you so sure then about verse five that this is before Jeremiah entered the the womb that you're taking that literal? Right, but mm -hmm. but you don't know in verse nine whether the Lord reached out. It just seems inconsistent to me. Yeah, well, again, I I, I didn't study verse nine to prepare for this, so I apologize. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, so and I and I, I I'm glad you read the second half of verse five, which says, "Before you were born, I sanctified you." So right. clearly, the context of that uh, of that verse is life in utero. And so I agree that Jeremiah was chosen in the womb. He was not chosen before the foundation of the world. He was not known before the foundation of the world. And that verse does not establish that God knows the future, nor does it establish he knows the entire future. It just establishes he knew Jeremiah before he was born. Is that what you're saying? Well, absolutely. Could I, All right, Mike, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, go yeah, ahead, Mike. No, I've been, that, brings up, that brings up new questions for me then. And let's just put aside and forget whether this meant uh, what it seems to mean to me. Uh, whether he knew Jeremiah beforehand. But this brings up for me an interesting parallel because he tells Jeremiah here before I formed you in the womb and he tells us what he had appointed him to do. And it kind of, to me, I'm reminded of this in Galatians 1.15 when Paul says that God set me apart from my mother's womb. I guess my question, I think this will really shine a light on exactly what our opinions are of God. Uh, but I would ask Will. So obviously he had, God had plans for these men uh, before they were born. So, was he just hoping that they would turn out to be some of two of his greatest servants? I mean, what, what did he just have his hopes up? But they could have said, you know what, I want nothing to do with you, and and so then his work would have been for nothing. Uh, okay, great question, Mike. <laughs> Here's my response. Uh, yes, uh, God chose certain men uh, while they were in the womb, um, and He had plans for them. What we find biblically is that when God chooses someone and has plans for them, it doesn't always work out. And so we have, we have great examples where it did work out, which I think is great, but we also have examples where it did not work out. And again, I think that's evidence of open theism. I want to just, I have to go to Romans 8 at this point, because, Will, we're talking about salvation here, right? And, and so... I didn't know we were talking about salvation. And, when did that happen? So... Mike, do you want to do you want to answer that or in the in the in the grand scheme here? Because the the mission at, at, at CSG is always not just to talk about the topic. And now we're low on time, and so we're coming. Obviously, I think you would admit, Will, from the more traditional Orthodox Christian position. And so for us, it's a salvation issue. And Tyler always likes to make that clear at least once, regardless of what the topic is. Right. That's God's ultimate plan is to save a chosen people. That whenever you said that some of God's plans don't always work out with the people that He chooses. Not in regards to salvation, though, like God saves whom God shows mercy on whom he desires to show mercy, right? 
Oh, I apologize, then, Todd, because I thought you were saying that, hey, this is this topic that we're discussing is a salvation issue. and uh, So, no, I completely misread you there. But, yeah, I would agree with you then in that regard, Tyler. Ultimately, it is. Yeah, go ahead. Let me just give you guys an example of what I would make sure that I get the chance. Go ahead, Will. Well, I'm on a little delay here, so. I was referring to, here's an example. I was referring to, to, uh, like, when God chose Saul to be king and later regretted that decision. And God actually says that he had planned on and would have um, given Saul the throne forever. Got you. So God came to basically, and correct this if this is wrong, but God came to a fork in the road. He had a decision to go with Saul or David. He saw what Saul was going to do, and he chose David instead because God learned that Saul, or, or well, we know what Saul did to, you know, for God to rip the kingdom from him. But is that what you're saying? Well, just so our listeners have a clear, you know, perspective where you're coming from, God comes to a fork in the road with Saul and David. He sees that Saul will do, is just, or he's seen that Saul is just not going to work out, and he chooses David. Is that what you're saying? No, what I'm saying, okay. all I'm doing is, is quoting scripture. So 1 Samuel 13 and 1 Samuel 15 state what God's intentions were for Saul, and then they tell us that God regretted setting up Saul as king. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying God had plans for Saul, and then ended, they ended up not working out, and God regretted that he did that. My So I'm glad you brought up 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Mm-hmm. How does that fit into what you just said? This is the point that I was trying to make in the beginning whenever I quoted Numbers 23. It says the exact sure. same thing. So how sure. is the, and I don't know any other way to put it than this, but how is the God that you're describing different from man in that sense? Sure. So, Tyler, it's unfortunate to me that that exact Hebrew word there, which actually does not mean relent, that's a bad translation. It means that's repent. the NK, that's the New King James Version. Yeah, correct. It's a it's that word is is translated wrong. It's the Hebrew word nacham, which means repent. Just for people to know, the Bible attributes that word, that Hebrew word, to God over two dozen times. It says that God does not repent twice. Numbers 23 and 1 Samuel 15. Interestingly enough, twice. in the context of first in the context of 1 Samuel 15, it says God repents twice. And in the middle, it says he does not repent. This is very simple. I, I think honestly, I, I've actually taught my kids this and they get it. When we see a verse that says God repents, he's repenting for something specifically. When we see a verse that says God does not repent, He's not repenting of something specifically. And to to put a bow on this, God repented that he set up Saul as king. And then verse 29 is saying he will not repent of taking the throne away from Saul. Uh, Tyler, if I could just interject that. Yeah, yeah, Uh, go ahead. Am I to understand, we we are uh, in agreement here that we're discussing the Hebrew word Nahum, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, because... Uh, again, I'm no Hebrew expert, but everything I have read, uh, there is uh, uh, there are several views that scholars assert here, and the majority do not believe that repent, and that's in the, in the English word repent, of course, has several meanings, but they're pretty clear here that that does not mean to repent the same way that uh, a man would repent. I don't think very many scholars, Hebrew scholars at all, make that uh, assertion. 
Okay, so number one, uh, no one stated that it means the same thing as a man repenting of sin. So if that's what you're implying, no, not that. But when we hear repent, when we hear the word repent, since it, 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 it we our mind automatically goes to something that we were never given any indication is something that God actually feels, and so since it can also mean to to change, you know, to change the heart, the disposition of the heart, uh, change one's mind, change one's purpose. I think to go immediately to the word repent kind of creates an impression. I just want to be sure people listening and not aware understand that uh, most scholars do not at all assert that it means in any way that that God was just, uh, I don't any meaning of repent that I know that would be the well, first um, meaning we would consider. I don't think applies there. Yeah, it, it means it means to turn or to have a change of mind or heart. That's what the word means. And we have uh, biblical examples of men changing their mind, and we have biblical examples of God changing his mind. And, and so we see Mike, it, again, but, but Will, but Will, hold it. on. But my question <laughs> is, there are specific verses that he says that, they, that he's not like a man. You just equated, you brought down God to man, and, and it, like, I don't understand how you're not seeing that. You're, you just said that man changes his mind, God changes his mind. My question this entire conversation is how is the God you're describing different? He's not. That's the point that I'm trying to make is that what you are describing is no different than me, is no different than you, is no different than Mike. What is okay, different? So let, me, let me explain. Numbers 23 is the story of Balak and Balaam. And they, God is essentially, they're trying to bribe God. So yes, God is not going to be like a man and accept a bribe. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is trying to get Samuel to get God to change his mind after what he's done, and he tears his robe. Saul tears Samuel's robe, and maybe a man would change his mind at that point, and Samuel says, no, God is not going to repent of taking the throne away from you. It's as simple as that. But the text doesn't say that. He do, it doesn't say he's going to take the th or he's not going to repent and take the throne away from you. It just says he should not relent or repent. Nakami. There's none of that. You're adding to the text. You're you're doing what you accused Mike and I of doing just a, just a few minutes ago. Is that you're saying that you're not sticking with the text at this point, and you're adding and bringing different things in? Hold on, like, I didn't. I, I didn't bring anything in. Let me just read verbatim uh, the verse. First Samuel fifteen twenty eight. So Samuel said to him, "The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent." Okay, it's exactly what it says. I didn't make that up. All right, Mike. Do you got any? Um, do you have any closing remarks? And yeah, I will uh, give it over to Will, and then we'll end. Well, uh, my closing remark would be that uh, it is always difficult for any uh, traditional Protestant to debate an open theist, and the reason why is because this, you will notice, is a unique form of exegesis that has been unknown throughout Christian history. I mean, we can go back to Chalcedon's uh, commentary on Timothy on his Latin translation of Timothy, that you, you may see some ideas that kind of leave it open, but what actually is known as open theism today, uh, they they go where people before never would go. We would never make assumptions about God. We would never rob uh, uh, certain attributes from him. Uh, and so it's, it can be difficult to just pin it down sometimes. But I would say this, 
when we read the actions of God that he repented of this or he we must understand that he is so much higher than us that we can never understand him as he is so he must uh, in a way speak so that we can understand what he's saying he must give us some idea of what he's feeling when it says that he's angry is he angry like us no not at all he knew exactly what was going to happen but he has to give us a way that we can understand that uh, he disapproves of what's happened here so the last thing i would say is we should not expect if our view is correct to find a single verse that says this or that we must translate in a woodenly literal way uh terms that are used there's a classic protestant uh, hermeneutic, and anyone that studies that, I'm confident, uh, will see the form of exegesis we use and just why we do. Will, what are your uh, closing remarks? Yeah, so I, I actually thought we had more time, so um, totally up to you guys, but if we want to continue this at another time, more than happy to. A um, couple things. Number one, um, I think if someone goes back and listens to this, I don't think they will hear from you guys making a case from the Bible that God knows the future. We talked about a lot of things, but I just don't see that that was there. Um, I mentioned the complete absence, uh, the, the Bible's completely absent of all these verses that we would expect to see if God knows the future. Then I gave all of the categories of verses that uh, essentially state that God doesn't know the future. And so I think that from a, from a topical standpoint of, of does the Bible teach that God, that God knows the future, I just don't think that there was a case made for that. And lastly, Mike, I think you made my prediction true. Um, you referred to the Orthodox Christian position. You referred to Christian history, scholars, and commentaries. And that's what I thought would happen at the beginning is instead of dealing with what does the Bible teach, we deal with what do people, men, believe throughout history. And I just think that we need to focus on Scripture. I think we need to have a second uh, part two on this discussion. Um, the, the, just as a reminder for our listeners in the closing remarks, I asked Will to come on to present a positive case for open theism, right? And to, I'm interested to go back to look to see if that was made as well, because there were questions asked that were not answered. There were um, verses that were brought up that were not dealt with in any way, shape, or form. They were skipped over. They, were, they went to a completely different context. And so, Will, if you see that, I see that as well from your side, my friend. Um, so just to just be consistent on that. But I want to thank you guys, like really thank you guys, because even though these are passionate conversations, even though we end up disagreeing in the end, right, I still think just because we disagree doesn't mean we shouldn't sit back down to discuss this. So if you guys are open to it, I am especially open to it. Um, Will, I want to thank you for coming on, for your generosity. Mike, same thing. It's good to have you back as co-host on CSG, brother. Missed you. Love you, man. And for those who want to catch more of CSG, feed.completecenters.com. If you try to go to completecenters.com, it'll be a little bit wacky, a little bit. Um, we're still working on the website. So if you just go feed, F-E-E-D.completecenters.com, you can catch all of our episodes. We will be back again next week for a surprise episode that I'm not going to tell you all about just yet. So we'll hope to see you then 7 o'clock Eastern, 6 o'clock Central. I'm Tyler. God bless. Good night. And thank you guys so much. <laughs>